1: Hello, I'm your host Cheryl Jones and I want to welcome you to Good Grief where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Shoshana Ungerlider Shoshana is an internist practicing hospital medicine in San Francisco, California. She received her medical degree from Oregon Health and Science University in Portland, Oregon, and completed residency at California Pacific Medical Center, where she's now on the teaching faculty and serves on the Foundation Board of Trustees. She's passionate about improving how seriously ill patients are cared for throughout the Continuum of Life. She founded the Ungerleiter Fund to support innovative programs that further palliative care education at every level. She was a major funder of Extremis, the Academy Award-nominated, wonderful, short documentary on end-of-life decision-making in the ICU by Director Dan Krauss. She's co-founder of Endwell, a national interdisciplinary symposium on design and innovation for the end-of-life experience, taking place in San Francisco on December 7th, 2017. Welcome, Shoshana. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you today. Very glad to have you, too. I, I um Read a few different places you quoted as saying death is hot right now, which <laughs> definitely uh, I felt to be true and also made me laugh um, because uh, when I first started exploring myself, my relationship to death, uh, I, I felt pretty lonely in that pursuit. It was while my first wife was ill. Uh, then we, fe- we started going to Stephen Levine a lot. He was um, definitely thinking about those things, but in my own community, uh, the people that were thinking about it were the people that had to because of us. And so, when you say death is hot right now, um, that implies something much broader. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, you know, it, it's funny. I, as a physician,
2: uh, spend time with you know other healthcare provider colleagues. Uh, Pretty often. And then also, you know, folks, uh, just just friends who are who come from other professional backgrounds and have other interests. And so, you know, when I'm sitting at a at a cocktail party or dinner uh, chatting about some of the work that I'm doing just in passing conversation, I sort of see uh, uh, an interest um, among among my friends and and my colleagues to be engaging in new and different conversations about this particular topic, especially people who are maybe uh, Gen Xers or, or millennials. So what I meant, uh, well, actually, I, I'll just say, you know, I, that was somebody actually said that to me, that death uh, looks to be really hot right now. And it made me laugh. But I'm also really uh, happy to hear that, you know, people want to want to talk about this. You know, we have books like When Breath Becomes Air, spending, you know, something like 60 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. Uh, Others like Being Mortal by Atul Gawande, you know, having 90 weeks, you know, uh, on the list. Yes. And the success of of the film Extremis, being bought by Netflix. I, I really do believe that there's a shift in the consciousness about discussions related to end of life, and people are really wanting to engage in this conversation more than ever. So I think we're really, and hoping we're really at a tipping point.
1: You know, it's interesting because I've thought a lot, of course, I, I've talked with, I've had Lucy Klonathy on, um, on the show and Jessica Zitter, a lot of people, you know, <laughs> you're, you're mentioning um, Jessica being the theme of your, the film Extremis and Lucy being Paul Klonathy's wife from When Breath Becomes Air. And um, you, you're all much younger than, than I, um, I do have some sense though that us baby, baby boomers, we've been an exploring generation and a lot of us, our parents are dying. You know, I happened to hit it earlier because of encountering death younger than many people. But, um, everyone around me at this point in my age group is talking about these issues in one form or another. But, um, how do you think that's generated in the medical profession and in younger people? Um, because there's, you know, I, there's a guy who does, uh, you're going to die nights in San Francisco that I've had on there. You know, th- there seems to be more comfort conversation with people who maybe have not actually experienced losses of that kind yet. Do you think so? I do think so. You know, Ned Buzkirk
2: who, who does yes. You're your Going to Die, is is, is fantastic. I, I got the opportunity to meet him finally in person uh, the other week. Um, I think, you know, it, it seems to me that, that millennials are often talking about more of the transitory nature of life. You know, they mm. are Data shows that they take contract jobs and they're more open to uncertainty and being honest about maybe what the future may hold. Obviously I'm not an expert in this, but you know it right. seems to be a generation that appears brutally honest and maybe will be the first generation to really normalize these conversations. I don't know. I mean I there are, you know, apps out there created by millennials like um, cake and ever plans and all these um, talking about advanced care planning um, using chat bots on Facebook Messenger, like Life Folder, which just launched, and and really trying to come you know, uh, confront uh, confront the conversation head on. Um, it seems like um, you know, in a very information driven and somewhat media saturated world. I think it seems like millennials are, um, you know, accustomed to finding, you know, what they need uh, when they need it. And so um, I, I do think that that there is uh, uh, hopefully a shift um, among this, this younger generation.
1: Well, Justin, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook a lot. Uh, people talk about their losses on Facebook uh, ongoingly. On on a person's birthday, you know, there's a kind of fluidity of of the conversation that wasn't there uh, previously, so that may be part of it. But Mm -hmm. as someone who does mental health work in the cancer community, I'm particularly um, excited that the medical community is, is, um, at least some of you, uh, are really taking on This aspect of medicine, I guess I'd say, and um, particularly your program where you're doing more training of uh, future physicians about how to approach end of life. Because I'm imagining there isn't a doctor who won't have to deal with those issues at some point along the line. So what What contributes to that being able to change? because I know that big, big things like uh, you know, teaching hospitals and big bureaucracies, it's hard to make change. So how has that been coming about?
2: You're absolutely right. it's It's very, very hard to make change. You know, a, a study that came out last year in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, that's been widely. Cited lately, actually, uh, showed that nine, rather seventy uh, percent uh, of doctors, so that they haven't been trained to have difficult conversations with patients. So that's falling into the category of of end of life discussions, advanced care planning, serious illness, you know, diagnosis type conversations. And so I think, uh, like you're pointing out, I we're we're definitely missing the mark with respect to medical education, and then formalizing a way for all doctors to really learn these vital skills. I, you know, I can tell you, um, when I finished residency, which was only a handful of years ago, I knew from my own experience that there were many, many gaps in the education that I received, both in palliative care, as well as communication skills. And I, I I feel like no matter what field of medicine uh, you end up going into, that having a basic competence in palliative care, in serious illness discussions, uh, and and effective communication skills is really, really critical. This is not just a conversation that you know primary care doctors have or oncologists have. This is um, something that, um, like you said, all all healthcare providers going to face with patients. And um, we were lucky enough, you know, at, at our hospital to be able to start a program um, using really philanthropy um, to provide seed funding um, for a mandatory comprehensive palliative care education program for all of the residents starting from year one. So no matter what field, like I said, th- these these young doctors are going going into, they're going to they're gonna have a foundation in, in palliative medicine as well as communication skills, which will be hugely helpful for them, no, no matter if they're talking about end-of-life issues or they're just talking about how to manage blood pressure and uh, you know other, other issues that people see the doctor for. And then we also feel strongly that physician wellness is uh, an unmet or an un, under-recognized um, issue. Um, with with physician training, we know that the rates of depression, of substance abuse, uh, suicidality are astronomically high within the medical profession, and so we want to talk openly about this with our trainees and and focus on doing what we can to prevent it. And um, so our our program in particular has been very well received um, by the faculty and by the, the trainees, and um, we started about three years ago. And for the very first time in the history of our program, we had not one but two uh, residents go into palliative care fellowship, and this has never, as I said, happened before in the history of our program. So I'm very encouraged by this. It shows me that an institutional, in institutional support of, of palliative care can really
1: uh, trickle down and uh, create real change. I really want to echo that. And, and also to say from the other end, from the patient end, which is who I talk to mostly doing support groups and, and private um, therapy with people with cancer, it, it can't be overstated what a huge, huge, huge difference it makes when... A physician that someone who's very ill is working with, when they're good at that, it's a completely different experience. And uh, I would say that 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 experience of a a physician being able to connect and have honest conversation about what's happening and all that may be the most critical determiner of the emotional experience, Uh, you know, uh, it really makes such a dramatic difference. Um, so I'm especially happy that everyone, not just the the doctors that are being trained in your program who are drawn to palliative care, but that every doctor is getting that. Um, because of course, you know, it's it's oncologists, radiologists, um, people in that realm that I most hear about, who who are not palliative care doctors for sure. Uh, that's very exciting to me.
2: Yeah, we're we're thrilled that we've been able to do it. And like I said, you know, we have had the support of uh, the CPMC Philanthropic Foundation and for seed funding. And so um, it's, it's a very unique program. Uh, there aren't that many around the country that are so comprehensively uh, focused. And I think it's absolutely right that communication skills are just uh, the key to improve the experience uh, for patients, for their families, and I think also for healthcare providers. You know, I can tell you yes. that um, that the residents who have gone through our communication skills training program, actually in conjunction with our health psychology department, feel so much more confident when having difficult discussions with patients and families. We're, we're arming them with you know, the confidence to really broach these difficult topics, but they're so incredibly important uh, to make sure that, you know, that the care that the patients get is the care they really want and they're, they're fully informed about their options and uh, as much as they possibly can be, so.
1: Well, I also can imagine, but you can tell me whether my imagination fits that, you um, I'm remembering the doctors my my wife had, who we got incredibly close to, um, because she was sick for 10 years, and um, it was such an intimate thing. She was in treatment the whole time, um, of one kind or another, Mm -hmm. and when end of life came, there was a drop-off. We never saw them again, Uh, and... I had, I I thought, I called her oncologist to get a death certificate. He had agreed to do that. She died at home. And when I called, he was, you know, we hadn't seen him in a long time because she had been out of treatment and he started crying. Hmm. And there was no sense of completion in that relationship, which I imagined also affected him. Um, But I don't know, because I'm not a doctor, you know, I'm not in that realm, but um, it was sort of uh, a drop-off for him, too, it felt like. Uh, We didn't, you know, we kind of said goodbye, but we didn't know, would she be back, all that kind of thing. Um, Do you think that affects uh, healthcare professionals emotionally, this kind of... um, Uh, that that often end of life is the end of that that connection as well or that care that you're offering. Absolutely. I mean, physicians are, (laughs)
2: you know, uh, human beings. Human beings. We, you know, make connections with our patients, especially uh, the primary care doctors who maybe have known their patients for years and years and seen them through various phases of their lives. I think... You know, for from, from many uh, on the front lines of, of care, we get caught in a system where we're highly fragmented in this country. You know, we have the, the, the primary doctors who, uh, as I said, sort of are the gatekeepers of care or on the front lines of medical care. But then when a patient needs more specialized treatment, like like your wife, maybe needing an oncologist. Um, or a a specialized palliative care doctor, you know, the the primary docs often kind of hand off their patients to a specialist, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, actually causes all kinds of um, problems for continuity of care, but also continuity of of that emotional relationship as well, um, which is why I, you know, I strongly believe that we should be um, supporting the field of well, or the, the practice of primary palliative care, meaning that, that you know, docs um, like primary care doctors, whether you're an OBGYN doing primary care, a family medicine doctor, uh, an internist should be able to provide um, a, a core competency of, of palliative care to patients. Obviously, you know, knowing that you can have the support of a, of a specialist um, if you need it for advanced Sort of symptom management, but um, as as much as we can, you know, allowing the 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 primary care doctors to be able to to manage um, issues as they come up, but um, that the training has to be there. I think most primary docs don't feel don't feel competent um, in order to provide this kind of care. So we have to do more around medical education.
1: Let's come back to that after the break, which it's time for, and also just that that. Folds into a conversation about uh, what we're what we're looking for at end of life, what makes a quote unquote, good death. So let's talk. Talk, let's go in that direction when you, when we come back. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America to get in touch with me in all kinds of different ways. And to find Dr. Shoshana Ungerleider, go to www.shoshanaungerleider.com. Uh, it's dot rcom Be back soon
3: your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness relationship issues anxious parenting challenges no more learn how to live your best life health and
0: wellness channel. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go. On iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones.
1: Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. Shoshana Ungerleiter, who's doing a lot of work to integrate palliative care uh, competencies into the medical environment and um, does a lot to bring those subjects out. And before the break, we were were talking about, uh, you know, how to um, integrate these these ways of talking and ways of approaching end of life into care in general and you were you were saying um that you envisioned it as a thing where whoever is the primary person uh stays in the center of things all the way along through the whole cycle which i have to um applaud even in terms of um, You know, for many people that I work with, it feels as if there's no one at the center, like that, they're going to the oncologist, then they're going to the radiologist, and then if they need a pap smear, they'll go to their primary care, but it doesn't feel cohesive in some ways. Is that your experience? Uh, Maybe not where you are because you're doing so much to to kind of integrate, but um, is that a phenomenon you're familiar with? Oh, absolutely! I think you know. I mentioned before the break our our medical system
2: is incredibly fragmented, and in that you know your your primary doctor, who maybe you've known for for a long time, um, unfortunately, you know, hands hands you off to a specialist should uh, serious illness ensue. And um, I think um, that you know that speaks to some some serious systems issues um, that we have in this country, but. Um, it, you know, prevents, prevents people from feeling like they have, uh, you know, uh, someone at the center of their care, really someone, a quarterback who's keeping track of all of the, of the information and, and the stories and um, making sure that there's continuity. So it's absolutely um, uh, problematic. Um, that said, you know, we're, we're working to try to make sure that um, more of our uh, healthcare providers you know, feel like they can um, stay involved, especially when people uh, are diagnosed with a serious illness and require specialist care. But um, maintaining the the relationship with a primary doctor, I think can be really, really um, valuable for both patients, well, and of course their families and and also uh,
1: the providers themselves. I'm also very aware how uh, potentially financial that problem is. Um, because there's so much pressure to, to have a fast appointment. Um, there has to be a really, you know, verifiable reason for the appointment. Um, I would imagine on the doctor end, it's really hard to do what you might feel would be uh, most helpful to the patient and still survive in, in a Say a pri- uh, a uh, primary care practice.
2: I think that's right. Um, like I said, you know, we're uh, we're we're sort of stuck in a an incredibly broken system on many levels, and so people in the primary care care realm often feel kind of rushed through uh, their visits. That's not to say they don't want to see their patients often and they don't care about them, but rather of they're course. um they're uh, pressured. Um, by by their practice to you know uh, v- very quickly move through m- move through their day and I know that um, that creates uh, a lot of resentment on the side of physicians actually we're not feeling fulfilled by mm-hmm. that experience either um, but unfortunately sure. it's
1: uh, it's the state of things in this country um, so we're we're a bit stuck. <laughs> And then uh, how that impacts end of life. You know, I was really struck when I was, uh, of course, reading about you for today and having interviewed um, the the subject, the, the doctor at the heart of extremists, uh, Jessica Zitter, how similar your stories were in terms of how you how you uh, realized that end of life care in the hospital was broken Um and, uh, as I understand it, both of you, it was seeing what happens in ICUs and emergency rooms um, to people who really are are dying. So to me, that's sort of the the end result of what we're talking about with the lack of conversation. if If people are talking all along with whoever it is, a primary care doc or whoever it is, about what they consider a good death, I imagine some of those moments would be um, relieved, would not happen. Uh, that's my dream anyway. <laughs> yeah, I. you know, like you said, just, just like
2: Jessica, I, I did not set out to be an advocate for end-of-life care, but I... Like her, had had several experiences during my training that led me to where I am, and then many of them happened in the ICU, where it's the most acute, um, most serious situations. And I, you know, found myself seeing frail, often elderly patients with many underlying chronic medical problems, plus end-stage heart failure or late-stage cancer, and they were being admitted to the ICU. Despite the fact that nothing that we were doing was gonna help them uh, to reverse their underlying problem. And I watched countless people spend their last moments of life suffering, you know, really hidden away from people who love them. And I realized, you know, a few years into training that this is really the default thing that we do in this country. Um, we we do actually save lives every day. We are so medically advanced that a lot of things that happen in the ICU are fantastic. So I'm not right. here to say that you know all it's all bad, but I think we have the feeling that just because we can do everything for everyone, that we should, and that's not. I don't agree with that. Mm. I think um, we're really failing our patients in many respects. And so, I became interested in another way of of caring for people, another philosophy of care. Um, And that's really palliative care. I think care that focuses on improving the quality of life for seriously ill people with a focus on their goals and their values of how they want to live their lives for the time they have left is really what resonates with me. And I think that includes upstream conversations, both among Healthcare providers and their patients, but also you know among families. I think that the earlier that people are engaging in conversation about what matters most to them, they're they're much more likely to receive care that they really want. Um, and you you Absolutely. talk about you know a, a good death. I don't think that there's any you know in quotes. The that really just means that you know that that people are getting care that's in line you know, like I said, with their goals and their values, there isn't yeah. one, one right way to do this. I think for some people, it's, you know, they're, if, if they're not able to, you know, run 10 miles and, and feed themselves and be completely autonomous, then life isn't worth living. And for other people, you know, I, I, I remember a story of a, a gentleman who was elderly who said, well, if I can just watch NFL football and eat chocolate ice cream, life is, life is good. (laughs) I I don't care about anything else. And so that was sort of, you know, how he wanted to spend his final days. So I think that that's an individual conversation that people need to both reflect on, you know, within themselves, and then also talk with their loved ones about.
1: And I also notice it can change over time uh, with people. You know, It's an ongoing conversation as well. And this sort of naturally leads us into the film you were so involved with, uh, because in that film, um, for people who don't know, Jessica Zitter is a um, physician at Highland Hospital in Oakland, where I live. And um, the film really captured, I thought, those different kinds of choices that people and their families might make at end of life. Uh, quite viscerally because it follows a few different families can you talk about how you came to be involved in that film and uh, you know it it, I was so excited that it got nominated for uh, an award because that means a lot of people will see it Uh, you know people people that does capture attention Um, I imagine that was not your original expectation though Not at all. Uh, The
2: the film actually just fell in my lap, to tell you the truth. Jessica Zitter is a close friend and a colleague of mine here in the Bay Area, and she and I were chatting one day casually over coffee, and she said, did I ever tell you they're filming a, a documentary in the ICU? And I said, no, that sounds amazing. Tell me more. And so she connected me with the director, Dan Krause, who sent me about a five-minute rough cut. And I remember watching it actually on my iPhone in the hospital one night at work. And I uh, I knew just watching those few minutes that, that he really captured something powerful. Mm-hmm. And I found myself getting really emotional watching it, which was surprising because I do this for a living and, and don't tend to get so emotional often about this. And I, I've often felt that if people could see behind that, you know, opaque curtain of what it's like to be sick in the ICU and, um, people, you know, may, may, would maybe be able to make more informed decisions about their own choices for their care. Cause to me, it's all about, um, being as informed as possible. So, um, I, uh, I remember calling Dan the next morning and and you know telling him how much I loved the the five minutes and he said well thank you but we've unfortunately run out of funds to to make this film and uh, he'd spent you know months and months um, off and on filming in in the ICU at Highland and had I I suspect you know close to a hundred hours of of footage that he was planning to whittle down and, and, and create a a film, but it obviously takes money to do that kind of post-production. And so I said, well, let's make this film. I feel so strongly that this is a a, a beautiful piece of work. So with that uh, got, got involved, got involved in the film. And we, I mean, I honestly had no expectations. I would, I think I would have been, thrilled if a few hundred people saw the film we, mm. we didn't have any set plans for distribution at that point and um, we got very lucky in that Netflix was interested and we were the very first short documentary they ever bought and oh my gosh I had no idea about that
1: yeah that's incredible
2: yeah and then the Oscar nomination came later which was Beyond and my wildest dreams for what could have happened with this film. So I think the stars aligned uh, just right last year uh, to make Extremis successful. And while we don't know exactly how many people have seen it and engaged uh, with with the film, we are feel very, very, um, very, very happy that that we've been able to have the reach uh, through through Netflix and through the. Uh, Oscar publicity that that we've had so I, I would imagine it's helping people to at least get a better sense of what you know the the what it looks like to be sick in the ICU what what ethical and moral issues come up around conversations with with physicians with patients and families so that people can you know have a better sense of of what, uh, you know, how they can approach this uh, when the time comes or if the time comes rather. And
1: so that does mean that people can go to Netflix and watch it? Absolutely. If you have a Netflix account, you can stream it live right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Uh, I I love it when, when, you know, films in my area end up uh, on platforms like that that are so... Uh, accessible to so many people and you know just they maybe have it for I don't know some series or whatever but um, really worthwhile to be able to go go watch um, something like Extremis so I highly recommend that out there listeners <laughs> um, so We're almost at our second break, but what I'd really like to talk about when we get back, and we'll just take a minute to start here, is uh, your upcoming conference. Um, I just want to say that you have started a fund. I don't know if it's technically a foundation or a fund, or you can explain (laughs) that, um, that supports projects like this, and Extremis was one of them, and um, this End Well conference is one of them and I just want to thank you for doing that work because it is a big problem for any of these projects to get funded that's one of the harder problems I believe so um, I I thank you for your work but uh, when we get back I'd really like to hear about your vision for it and what kinds of things you imagine happening there great yes I look forward to uh, telling you all about it (laughs) <laughs> um it is in December, right? December 7th. December 7th of this year is the Endwell Symposium
2: taking place in San Francisco and uh, people if they're interested can find out more information but uh on on our website endwellproject.org but we can definitely talk more about it.
1: Definitely as soon as we get back I really want to hear you know who you've brought together how you how you expect people to to interact there because it sounds very exciting from what I've read online. And so, uh, listeners, you can feel free to go find either one of us during the break. Um, Along with my Good Grief page, you can go to my website, weatheringgrief.com or shoshanaungerleider.com to find Shoshana. Back after the break. (laughs)
3: real-life solutions voice america health and
0: wellness you are listening to good grief with cheryl jones
1: Who's an MD who's been working very passionately to integrate uh, palliative care ideas and and ways of having conversation about end of life into medicine. And before the break, Shoshana, we were uh, just beginning to talk about your upcoming conference uh, in several months. End well. Can you tell the listeners? Uh, you know, give them an overview of, of what your vision is and, and uh, what you expect that to be like as best you know at the moment?
2: Yes. So Endwell is taking place in San Francisco on December 7th of this year. And it's really the first of its kind gathering to bring together the world of human-centered design, technology, um, healthcare, healthcare, policy, arts, and education um, with the goal of, of really generating interprofessional, very human-centered innovation for the end-of-life experience. We um, are expecting 400 attendees from all over the world from really different backgrounds all coming together to talk about what it means to live well until the very end. And we have about 20 incredible speakers lined up who will be delivering very engaging, fast-paced talks throughout a full day with art and music uh, woven in to the experience. We um, have uh, had an incredible response um, in just the month that we've been live with registration. And people are very much wanting to um, wanting to uh, attend and and support the event. We have um, people like Dr. B. J. Miller, who is a palliative care physician at the University of California, San Francisco, and was formerly the executive director at Zen Hospice Project, keynoting the event. His amazing TED Talk has been viewed. millions and millions of times and he has a very unique uh, take on aesthetics around end of life. We have um, Lucy Kalanithi who is an assistant professor of medicine at Stanford and she's the widow of the late uh, Paul Kalanithi who wrote uh, the New York Times bestseller When Breath Becomes Air. We have uh, Ivor Williams who's the senior design associate at the Helix Center which is a very fascinating Uh, pop-up design studio uh, situated within St. Mary's Hospital in London. So they actually Mm. do rapid prototyping of of products, uh, some of them related to end-of-life care, in their pop-up, and then they, across the street, can actually implement them and and test them within the hospital um, itself. Fascinating work. And uh, another is Yoko Sen, who founded send sound so she is a electronic uh, musician mm. and creates ambient music most recently worked on a project where she transformed the very harsh beeps and dings in an ICU and made them into much more pleasing music using uh, her electron instruments so she will be um, uh, at the event uh, as a as a presenter we have uh, Tracy Godette, who is the executive director of the VA National Office of Patient-Centered Care and Cultural Transformation, talking about what it means to transition an entire healthcare system to be more focused on patients and families' goals and values. Um, and of course, Jessica Zitter, who's who's in um, Extremis, will be partnered with another friend and colleague of ours, Don Gross, talking about their work in palliative care and launching an innovation that they call death ed. So going into high schools and just how we teach sex ed to young students, also teaching them about death and dying and seeing um, death as a part of life, um, recognizing, you know, as human beings, that this is um, sort of the, the, the fate of being human. Um, mm. So there are many, many others that we'll be releasing over the next month or two. Um, And more information, of course, on our website, as well as registration, which is endwellproject.org. And uh, like I said, we, you know, welcome really uh, anyone to attend. This is open to the public. um, And, uh, you know, we have 400 uh, spots which are going actually uh, quite quickly here, but um, I think it'll be an incredible day to connect with people um, from the worlds of design and, and technology and healthcare and, and um, you know, activated patients and caregivers to sort of hear what the, what the latest is happening and also highlight some of the amazing work that's been going on for many years
1: uh, in this space dawn has been on my show, too. i A oh, lot of wonderful. people that are speaking <laughs> i, I um, I've met in this form. Um, is it Is there any connection between the conference? Uh, quite a bit ago, I don't know, maybe as much as as a year, there was a uh, a project through Open IDEO around here that some of the language you're using sounds familiar like d- uh, design um, the idea of designing end of life it, is a pretty new phrase in my experience anyway and I just wondered uh, whether both, uh, both things got that somewhere else or whether that's kind of generated through this uh, asking questions about how we want to look at end of life yeah so human centered design
2: has been around for 20 or 30 years as my understanding it's it's really a a philosophy or a way of looking at a problem by keeping the end user in mind uh, when solving a problem mm-hmm. so in in the example of of end of life care it's really maintaining the the patient and caregiver at the center of the conversation when we think about designing a product or designing a service or a system, which to me as a physician is a no brainer. We obviously should be, should be doing that with everything we're, that we create or rethink. But unfortunately, I think that that gets lost um, in, uh, in the many layers uh, of healthcare. So uh, to answer your question, I was uh, a, a sponsor of the open IDEO, design challenge that happened in last year, in 2016, and we really uh, opened up the question to the world of, of what would it look like to reimagine the end-of-life experience for patients and their families, and it, we had an incredible response. It was, you know, myself and and Sutter Health were behind um, the, the funding for this particular program, and we had thousands of people from... All walks of life from all over the world engage in this conversation. and uh, it was really, really exciting to have so many people um, involved. Um, I you know, I, I think Ido is just um, an incredible uh, organization, a company that that really that really cares about this topic. Um so there we have um, their chief creative officer, Paul Bennett. Is an advisor to Endwell, and they are um, real allies, you know, in this space. And as far as you know, we, we're talking about the same things because you know we we are mission aligned, and that we want to mm. um, really help to transform um, the the care that people receive around the end of life experience. So we're we're actually very lucky that we're all. Uh, relatively in the same area in the, in the Bay Area, um, so it's been great to collaborate with them um, as time has gone on here.
1: Well, I, I I too found that such an exciting thing that there was so much engagement uh, at that time, and and then that continues in you know various directions, including um, this, and. Um, I just I just have a picture of um, I, I'm really happy to hear that there's art and art, the arts and music interspersed because, you know, that's one of the things that makes such a crucial difference is those human expressive forms uh, that human beings are in the process of dying. And, you know, there there are ways to um, continue to speak and engage uh, I, I love the idea, for instance, um, I don't know how scientifically true it is, but I heard a long time ago that music, the music center of the brain is the last to die, which since I'm a musician, I love, um, <laughs> you know, that if, if we're singing to someone or, or there's music, that idea that someone would create Different sounds for those terrible beeping machines. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. so intriguing to me having sat with many people with beeping machines um, kind of interrupting things. Uh, that's fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We we feel
2: very strongly that, you know, that the those human elements have to be a part of this conversation. I I've also heard that that music is the last thing with uh, the that center of the brain. I'm not sure if it's true, but I uh, it seems um really beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> and
1: it seems um uh, emotionally resonant to me because whenever I'm I'm um, with someone who's dying, I I really feel. I mean, I am a musician, but I don't always feel the impulse to sing in every situation. But I always do in that situation.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: There's something about it that invites uh, musical conversation more than talking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so that is definitely anecdotal. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but it does resonate quite deeply for me. So uh, you said it's going to be that will be interspersed in the conference. Uh, so there will be uh, talks that people give and then performances. Is that there will yeah? So there will be individual talks which will be short, like fifteen
2: to twenty minute uh, sessions, and then interspersed with a few panels. And then uh, Fireside Chats, just to break up the formats. But then also, there will be uh, music and art. And we're in the process right now, our production team, of, of deciding what that will look like and how it best fits into the day. Because I also think it's hard to be kind of intellectually just tuned in for a full day. There are you know moments that people need a break to use a different part of their brain to connect with art and with music. So that's a huge priority uh, for acid and well.
1: Well, that's also seems in line. You mentioned, but we didn't talk fully about it. This, this idea of uh, people, especially medical people is what we were talking about at that moment. um, And self care. Mm -hmm. And to me having ways to uh, my friend, Dina Joseph, who, who, is one is the assistant director, or associate director of palliative care at UCSF. Does a lot of work with self care for for medical professionals, and one of the things she really believes is that you need uh, ways to um, reflect, ways to soothe your nervous system, all of that. So um, mm-hmm. I can really imagine that you're kind of practicing what you preach there and integrating more than just talk into that day. Absolutely. It's so incredibly important. And, you know, as I mentioned, the data
2: has just come out over the last year or so and been more widely talked about, even in the popular press, about the fact that the rates of uh, burnout, professional burnout and, and depression and substance abuse among healthcare providers is really, really high. And we're doing nothing to combat it as a, as an institution of medicine. I think that the traditional culture of, of medical practice, I would say mostly with physicians, I think nurses are actually much, much better at this than, than physicians, but the culture is around kind of machismo of, of not asking for help when we're suffering. And the fact that we often are witness to, to very traumatic, traumatic, potentially traumatic events and we don't mm-hmm. have an outlet to to debrief it to discuss it. I can tell sure. you you know've I've been but a witness.
1: sorry, go ahead. That's okay. We're just about out of time and we're gonna have to leave that there but I, I hope that um, at some point we could talk just specifically about that how to uh, how physicians are trying to institute self-care in their work because to me it it goes with, Uh, You know, when we do it for ourselves, we give it better. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you so much for being with me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And you can, uh, listeners, you can go find Shoshana Ungerlider at www.shoshanaungerleider.com. And next week I'll have Bill Tucker, a psychiatrist whose book Narratives of Recovery from Serious Mental Illness makes the case that in supporting the goals of our mentally ill patients, they can more successfully, successfully move towards lives of satisfaction, even if not cure. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.
0: Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time, for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week.